Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. When I was eight years old, I went to the grocery store with my mother. And I kind of sneaked away because I was a little bit fascinated at that time with cigarettes. Now, my parents didn't smoke, but I'd seen people that did smoke. And so I was kind of fascinated as a little eight-year-old boy. So I actually stole a pack of cigarettes from the grocery store, hid them in my shorts, and the entire way home in the car, I was really nervous. My palms were sweaty. And so we got home and I told my mom, I said, Mom, where are the matches? And she's like, I don't, matches are over here. So I, I got a match and I said, I'm going to go outside and play. So I went out in the backyard, and I hid behind a big tree that we had out there, and I I took out a cigarette, and I I took a puff, and about puked as an eight-year-old boy. And I felt so guilty that I'd stolen cigarettes, that I'd smoked cigarettes, that I I threw the pack of cigarettes over the, the fence. And to this day, I've never confessed this to my parents. So if they're watching this on live stream or something, um, they don't know the story. The second story I'm about to tell, I don't know either. <laughs> so... When I was in seventh grade, so that was, that was when I was second grade, okay, eight years old. When I was in seventh grade, we lived on the last street of a housing development. So there was a big field behind us. We'd go ride our bikes back there, and it was a fun place to play. And so one day I was out there riding my bike, and I came across a, this piece of plywood that seemed out of place. So I lifted up the plywood, and sure enough, underneath it were about 12 to 15 Playboy magazines and other adult-type magazines. And so as a seventh grader, I thought, wow, this is a stash. This, this is the jackpot. So I didn't take any right then, but I went home. And all that night, I dreamed, I mulled over in my head. I, I came up with a plan of how I was going to sneak those back into my house. So the next day, I took my backpack, and I went um, riding around. And so I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And finally, I went to that area, and I, I commandeered five of those magazines, brought them back into my house, snuck them into my house, looked at them, felt guilty again, and went back to the place and put them under the plywood and got rid of them. Okay, so when I was a kid, those were some pretty overwhelming temptations to deal with as a second grader, as an eighth grader. And let me just tell you this, as you've gotten older and as I've gotten older, things don't change that much, do they? I can imagine that almost everybody in this room deals with some type of temptation. The overwhelming pull of temptation, where you've given in to temptation. You've not been able to resist temptation. Now, why do I bring up this issue of fighting temptation? Well, in our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see two trials. Now, at first glance, it's very easy to see that Jesus is on trial. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before Annas. He's put on trial. That's very easy to see. But there's another trial going on at the same time. 
It's Peter's trial. Peter's going to be put on trial. And we know the story. He's going to deny Jesus three times. So what John does here in chapter 18, almost like in split-screen fashion, like if you watch a movie and there's split screen or there's, there's jump cuts between two different things, he, he shows these two things going on side by side to heighten the tension, to heighten the drama, to draw us into the story. So let's read the story together. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. This is right on the heels of where we left off last week. John 18, starting in verse 12. So the band of soldiers... And their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Can you guys do me a favor and bring the lights up just a little bit more? I can't. I'm having a hard time seeing. And if you guys are, if I'm having a hard time seeing, you guys may have a hard time. Nope. There we go. Full lights. There we go. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Okay, here's the big idea of this passage of Scripture. Here's the the main point, the central thrust that I want us to understand this morning. A prideful overconfidence opens you up to the dangers of, of temptation. A prideful overconfidence opens you up to the dangers of temptation. Now I want to just give a little bit of background about Peter before we get to this text. Because in Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus going off by himself to pray and he leaves the disciples there, especially Peter. And in Matthew 26, 40 through 41, He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, you better watch. 
because you might fall into temptation very shortly. Luke chapter 22, verses 33 and 34. What does Peter say right before Jesus is going to go be arrested? Just, just hours before, he said, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. I'm ready to follow you all the way to death, Jesus. I'm your man. And then earlier in John chapter 13, in verses 36 to 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Okay, two issues with Peter going on here. Number one, Jesus says to him, you better watch that you don't fall into temptation, Peter. And what does Peter say? I'm with you all the way to the end. I'm your man, Jesus. I will fight to the death. I will go to, to, the, to prison. I, I will go the lengths for you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You're going to deny me three times and then the, the, the rooster's going to crow. So let's pick up this scene here. Really, there's four scenes. These four jump cuts, if you will. Four scenes. Jesus, Peter. Jesus, Peter. Let's look at scene one. Jesus' arrest in verses 12 through 14. Now, just remember, last week, Jesus faced the cross with an unwavering sovereignty. Remember, he was in charge of the whole situation. The only reason they could arrest him is because he let them arrest him. He's not a victim. He's not a martyr. Uh, this, this pitiful martyr that's not in control. If you remember last week, Jesus is sovereignly in control of the whole situation. So they do arrest him, and they bring him to Annas' house. Now, you may be a little bit confused here because it says Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. So who's the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Which one is it? Well, let me tell you exactly what was going on back then. Technically, Caiaphas was the high priest in the eyes of the Roman authorities, technically. But the one who's really in charge is Annas. Annas is the father-in-law. Annas held the office of high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. But then he was deposed by the one that came before Pilate. And so he was deposed because the Roman authorities kind of wanted to have their own person there, so they put Caiaphas in. But according to Jewish tradition, the high priest was there for life. So in the eyes of all the Jewish people, Annas was the top dog. He was the one that really held all the power. Everybody looked to Annas, although Caiaphas was the technical high priest. So the one who's doing all the operation here, the one who's really in charge, is Annas. He's the one that's pulling all the strings. He's the top dog. And so that's where they take him, to Annas, to be questioned. Okay, that's scene one. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to be questioned by Annas. Scene two, Peter's first denial. Verses 15 through 18, okay? The split screen, quick jump cut. We move outside the house where Peter's outside the door. And in verse 17, there's this little servant girl. We don't know her name. She's not a big, imposing Roman soldier. She's not the temple police. 
She's just a little girl, but she cynically, with those penetrating words, asks Peter the $10 million question. What does she ask Peter? You're not with that guy, are you? You're not one of his disciples, are you? Now, the way it's worded in the original language is really has a biting tone to it. There's a, there's a little bit of cynicism. It's kind of mocking. You're not with Jesus, are you? You, you surely can't be with him. You're not one of his disciples, are you? And how does Peter answer? I am not. Remember what Jesus said last week? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they all fall down. Jesus says, I am. What does Peter say? I am not. I am not. I'm not one of his followers. I'm not one of his disciples. You've got me confused. Now, there's a charcoal fire which will come into play down the road. Just keep that in your mind. But I want you to see the irony here. I want you to see the, the, the symbolism that's going on here. In verse 18, Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Where's Peter? He's standing with them. What did he say earlier? I'm going to stand with you, Jesus. I'm going to go to the end for you, Jesus. I'm going to stand up for you, Jesus. Where's he standing now? He's standing with the enemies. He's standing on the outside. He is standing in opposition to Jesus. He's not with Jesus. He's standing against Jesus. He's aligned himself with one who's denied Jesus. All right, let's go back to scene three. The, the, the scene shifts back inside the house where Jesus is now on trial. They begin to question him. Now, you need to understand how illegal this is happening. There's a lot of illegalities going on here. First of all, you were never supposed to take a trial overnight, in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness. The Sanhedrin met, and you had to have 23 members of the Sanhedrin to render a capital offense guilty and you had to have um, this done in the middle of the day it couldn't be done at night so jesus is not getting a fair trial because this is probably in the middle of the night maybe like two or three in the morning this is going on some scholars tell us so number one it's going on in the middle of the night nobody knows what's going on number two it was illegal to actually question the defendant you were not allowed to directly ask questions to the person on trial that was against the law which is the reason why, number three, you were supposed to bring in witnesses. Two to three witnesses to corroborate the story. So a person that's standing on trial did not have to testify themselves. You brought in witnesses that would testify either for or against the defendant. So Jesus was not required to answer. So they're doing this at night where nobody knows what's going on. They're directly asking Jesus the question, and they're not bringing in any witnesses to corroborate. And what does Jesus say when they ask him these things? He says, listen, I've held nothing back. I've taught out in the open. I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. I've not done anything out in secret. I'm not some rebel that's back, you know, behind the scenes trying to build an uprising in secret. Everything I've done, I've done publicly. And by the way, why don't you go get a witness in here to ask them what I've taught? Basically, Jesus is saying in a roundabout way, what you guys are doing is illegal. What you guys are doing is unethical. I should not be standing trial. I should not have to be defending myself, bring in some witnesses. 
Well, what happens? One of Annas' lackeys backhands Jesus. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Boom! Back, backhand Jesus. Slap him in the face. That was also illegal. You were not allowed to physically hit somebody who was on trial until after the sentencing. Matthew's gospel tells us this. In Matthew 26, 67, they spit in his face and struck him, and son slapped him. Jesus is basically saying, you're being illegal, you're being unethical, you're manipulating the situation, you're not giving me a fair trial. Jesus is exposing their sin. He's exposing their sin. He's still in control of the whole situation. He's exposing their sin. He's exposing their greed, their manipulation. Basically, this is a kangaroo court. Now, they had no authority as the Jewish leaders to put Jesus to death. That was only reserved for Rome. Only Pilate could render the death sentence. And so they know that, so they have to actually go through the proper channels, so they're going to have to take Jesus to Caiaphas, the technical high priest, who's then going to take him to Pilate. We'll see that next week. That's why in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, scene four. Peter's second and third denials. Okay, where's Peter now? He's standing, he's warming himself. He's already aligned himself with Jesus' enemies. He's standing against Jesus. He's trying to kind of hide out. He's trying to be as inconspicuous as he can be. And then one of the persons draws attention to him in verse 25. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. Number two, said, I am not. Second time he's denied it. Then... It gets even a little harder to wiggle out of it because Malchus, remember last week Malchus is the one whose ear got cut off? Well, it says there in verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with Jesus? I mean, I saw you there. You were standing next to Jesus. As a matter of fact, didn't you pull out the sword and cut cut my relative's ear off? You're lying, Peter. You were there. What does Peter say? Verse 27, Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. Denial one, denial two, now three, cock-a-doodle-doo. The ominous crow of the rooster. Now, in Mark's gospel, there's a little bit more graphic detail. In Mark 14, 71 through 72, this is Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Matthew tells us, or Mark tells us that Peter swears. He cusses. I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In Mark's gospel, Peter is cussing. In Mark's gospel, he can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. I don't know the man who you're talking about. And then in the original text, it tells us really that he went out and flopped himself on the ground and uncontrollably, violently wept, sobbing uncontrollably. And some scholars tell us that the rooster may have been crowing three to five minutes. That's a long time to crow. If you're Peter, what are you thinking? Would you just shut up already? Do you have to, do you have to rub it in, Rooster. Two trials are going on here. 
the trial of Jesus before Annas, the high priest, the imposing high priest. Peter's on trial, but he's before a little slave girl and a bunch of unnamed people who are accusing him. D.A. Carson makes this great statement. He says, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Now, at this point, we think to ourselves, Peter, Peter, why'd you do it? You, were, you started out so well. Such bravado, Peter. Such confidence. Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you to the end. Jesus, I'm going to go to prison for you. I will die for you. But then when the rubber meets the road and a little slave girl looks him in the eye and says, are you with him? Mm, I'm not. He cowers in fear. You've cursed. You've denied. And now you're weeping in guilty tears. Now before we pick on Peter, every single one of us has been tempted. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to help understand the issue of temptation real practically. Now, much of what we're going to study here in the, in the next few moments together is what our men have been studying the past few months on Monday mornings in our book on temptation that we just finished. So a lot of this will be a review for some of the men that went through that. But I felt like this is a great time to ask the question, how do you handle temptation? How do you handle temptation? So let me suggest this morning six principles for handling temptation. There's probably more. So how do you and I handle temptation? Because temptation is going to hit us. Here's the first principle. Number one, understand the foolishness of overconfidence. Peter was overconfident, wasn't he? I'm never going to get tempted. It's never going to hit me. I'm never going to be asked to deny Jesus. I've got it together. There was an overconfidence. He talked a great game, but when the hour of trial came, he was not confident. He cowered. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 28, 26, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, we need to be very realistic when it comes to temptation. There is an unholy trinity out to get us. The unholy trinity. The devil, the world, and your flesh. The devil is real. He's going to tempt you. He's going to be like a roaring lion looking to devour you. You need to remind yourself, the devil's real and he's after me. The world is real. The allurements of the world, the things of this world will come at you. You need to remind yourself the world is real and it's after me. And not only that, but your own flesh, your own internal desires, your own sinful desires are real and they're going to trip you up. So you need to remind yourself that you are at war every day with three enemies against your soul and you're not as powerful and confident and secure as you think you are. 
The moment you think you've got it all together, the moment you think that you're never above falling, the moment that you think that you're, that you're, that you're all that, that's the moment that you're most susceptible to falling because you're overconfident. We're overconfident. That's what happened to Peter. I'll take you to the end, Jesus. I'll follow you to the end. So understand the foolishness of overconfidence. That's number one. Number two, secondly, know and protect your heart with the gospel. Know your heart. And not only know your heart, but protect your heart with the gospel. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart's sometimes hard to understand. You need to learn to understand your heart. Know your heart. Know those particular areas of weakness that you fall prey to. What are those inner lusts of your heart? And then not only just know your heart, but guard your heart. Proverbs 4, 23-27 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. And let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. You see, the reason you fall into temptation is because the desires start in your heart. That's where it starts. It starts in your heart. That's why James tells us in James 1, 13-14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By your own desire. You see, you have sinful desires, and I do too, deep down in our hearts that hide out. And sometimes they just pop up. And we don't know what to do with them. We've got to get very well acquainted with our hearts. You need to ask God to search your heart. That's why the psalmist, David, in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, said, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Know your heart. Ask God to expose your heart. Ask God to search your heart. And then you've got to guard your heart. The primary way you guard your heart is by filling it with God's Word. Memorize, underline, star this next passage of Scripture I'm going to give you. This is a passage of Scripture I've dealt with and and had tried to memorize my whole life, especially as a young man. If you're a young man, if you're a young teenage boy, if you're a young boy, or you're an old man, or you're an old woman or a young woman, it doesn't matter who you are. Psalm 119, 9-11. How can a young man... Keep his way pure? That's the question. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've stored up your word in my heart. I've filled my heart with your word that I might not sin against you. Know your heart. Guard your heart. Number three. Third principle. Watch carefully for oncoming temptation. You got to watch. What did Jesus, I'm going to remind you of what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch for it. When the temptation comes, you've got to be ready for it. And, and when it comes, you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with it. Because sometimes it comes immediately. What are you going to do when it comes immediately? Well, you better not bargain with it. You better not argue with it. You better not try to justify your actions with it. You see, that's the problem. When the, when the temptation comes, you begin talking with it. And try to manipulate it and, and bargain with it and, and try to figure out, no, you don't do that. When it comes at you, you immediately start thinking about the cross. You immediately start thinking about Jesus and the gospel. You immediately start flooding your, your mind with the things of Christ. Being watchful. Being watchful. Randy Gardner holds the world record for going the longest days without sleep. There was a study back in 1964 by Stanford University. Anybody want to guess how many days he went without sleep? 11 days. Now, that's amazing that the human body can go that long, but eventually the human body shuts down because what do we need? Sleep. We need sleep, but let me just tell you something. Sin never sleeps. Temptation never sleeps. It's always coming at you, always coming at you, always coming at you. It never takes a nap. So we need to be diligent and watchful and alert for those oncoming temptations. Number four, think about the consequences of giving in to temptation. So not just guard your heart, guard your heart, be watchful, be humble, but also think about the consequences. In other words, think about this. What collateral damage am I going to have to deal with if I give into this temptation? What bodies are going to be strewn behind me that I'm going to have to deal with that I'm going to impact? How is the witness of Christ going to be affected? How is this going to affect my relationships? How is this going to affect my family? How is this going to affect my witness? What are the dire consequences that I'm going to have to face if I give into this temptation? Because see, some of the lies that Satan tells you is that there's no consequences. That's the lie Satan will tell you. There's no consequences. Go ahead and go for it. You can deal with the consequences later. Have fun now. What does God say in Galatians 6, 7 through 8? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from his flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will also reap eternal life. Okay, number five principle, the fifth principle. Pray for help in the moment of temptation. Pray for help in the moment of temptation. Now, let me just clarify some things. The temptation itself is not sinful. The temptation itself is not sinful. Sometimes temptations come and they just hit you out of the blue. Like, whoa, where'd that come from? Other times you premeditatedly go into the temptation knowing exactly what you're going to do. But I'm talking about those times where, man, the temptation just hits you and it's, it's overwhelming. What do you do when it just hits you? Pray. Pray. And think about the promise from the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful to provide a way out if you pray. 
Psalm 25, 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. I'm going to wait for you, God. I'm going to trust in you. Hebrews 2, 18, this is about Jesus. For because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to help you when you're being tempted, in the moment. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Pray for help and God is faithful to give it to you. He will rescue you. But there's a caveat. There's a warning. If you willingly and deliberately and negligently enter into temptation, know exactly what you're doing, and you expect God to bail you out at the last minute, you're walking on thin ice. I'm not saying God won't. God is sovereign and he can deliver you however he wants, but you're being presumptuous at that moment. You're basically saying, I'm going to do all these things that I want to do. And oh yeah, God, by the way, would you bail me out at the last minute? That's being presumptuous. Here's the sixth principle. This is really the bottom line. Trust in Christ alone instead of trusting in yourself. You see, ultimately, the, the Christian life is a matter of trust. It's a matter of faith alone in Christ. Where's your trust? Where's your hope? Are you trusting in your confident ability to deal with temptation? Are you trusting in what you can produce? Are you trusting in yourself, in your own resources? Are you being overconfident? Are you not guarding your heart? Are you not watching? Are you not thinking about the consequences? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. You see, I think many times we're like Peter. We're overconfident. That's never going to happen to me. We don't know the depth of sin that's lurking in our own hearts. We don't guard our hearts. We're not watchful for temptation. We don't think about the consequences. We don't really make preparations to, to say no to temptation. We just trust in ourselves. I can get myself, I can get myself out of it. I've gotten myself out of a lot of scrapes. I'll, I'll get myself out of this. We're overconfident. But in a moment of weakness, what do we do? We cower like Peter in fear. And we hide. And we may even deny Christ by our actions. Now, where's the hope when you sin? Because all of us are going to fall into temptation. I'm not, I'm not up here saying that you're going to be perfect or I'm going to be perfect because you're never going to fall. There's kind of an offhanded statement that was made. I don't know if you caught it. In verse 14. It's almost kind of like a bypass statement. It's theologically true, but it's, it's spoken by a guy that's ungodly. Look at verse 14. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That's theologically true. One man did die for the people. Jesus did die for our sins. This man knew more than he knew. Jesus paid for all of your sins, past, present, future, so that you could stand accepted before God as the holy God. But this is not, let me repeat, the forgiveness we have in our sins, past, present, and future, is not an excuse for you to go send your heart out. 
I love sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. Let's keep this going. No, it's not an excuse to do that. There's a, there's a paradoxical cha- chapter, uh, a paradoxical verse in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. I love it because it, it just it sums it all up. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, okay? Don't sin. I'm writing these things to you that you don't sin. Please don't sin. Don't fall into temptation. Don't sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But John's a realist. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You hear what John's saying? Don't sin. Don't fall into temptation. Don't be like Peter. Don't sin. But if you do sin, there's hope. Because we have an advocate. We have a go-between. We have a mediator. His name is Jesus Christ, who's died for our sins. He's paid for our sins. You go to him and you confess those sins. And you trust in him alone. And you praise Jesus that he died for your sins. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, it's a perfect opportunity for us to praise Jesus that he is the advocate, he's the go-between, that he is the one that's paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And again, that's not an excuse for us to go out and sin all that we want. It's a way to say, Jesus, thank you for the cross, and now I want to live a life that is pleasing to you because of the gracious provision of grace that comes to help us in our time of need. All of us are needy. All of us need grace. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's humbly, not overconfidently, let's humbly bow before Jesus and let's just live out, confess Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. That by faith alone we would trust with you or trust in you with our whole heart. We would not lean on our own understanding. We would not be overconfident. We would not be walking according to our own ways, but Lord, we'd be guarding our hearts. We'd be watching for temptation. In all our ways, we'd be acknowledging you. And Lord, those times that we do fall, we're thankful that Jesus, you died for our sins, past, present, and future. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who died on the cross to pay for those sins. So Lord, as we celebrate your supper, the Lord's Supper this morning, help it be a time of joy that our sins are forgiven and also a time of hope that we can walk in holiness because, Jesus, you've provided us everything we need. Your grace is sufficient. You give us help in those times of need. We can say no to temptation because of your gracious provision. And as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness by your divine power. So thank you, Jesus, for the provision that you give us. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.